I have a hard time picking just one label for my spirituality. It's like trying to pick one food to eat every day for the rest of my life. What, what one food would that be? It would be near impossible. Would it be a Reuben sandwich or a Reese's peanut butter cup? I don't know. <laughs> but the one path I've been drawn to the most for the last 25 years is Zen Buddhism. Although I've read quite a few books and had plenty of conversations about Buddha or Zen or even Taoism, the one activity I'd rather do is Zazen meditation, which is just sitting. That's it, just sitting. No goal, nothing to achieve, just emptiness, which is easier said than done, just sitting, or maybe it's easier done than said, since the more one talks about Zazen or Zen, the more complicated it becomes. So when I'm just sitting, do thoughts arrive, arise? Well, yeah, of course they arise, but, but I don't judge the thoughts or, or hang on to them or have an opinion of the thoughts or tell myself I'm doing a crappy job at just sitting because my mind is having thoughts. I breathe in and breathe out, just return to the breath, return to the emptiness, and that is freedom. Many children might see being made to sit in a corner, face the wall, and just sit there in silence as punishment. Not me, that's, that's a reward. I, I usually don't like talking, and look at me now, here I am standing and talking about sitting in silence. <laughs> yeah, taking the time for emptiness is a reward. For that time on the cushion, I have no goal, nothing to achieve, no stress. I practice that for the times when I'm not just sitting. I became a member of this fellowship in 2004, and during the new member orientation class, UU 101, I met a woman named Heather, some of you might know, and at that time in my life, I certainly had no go of a romantic relationship. This was about five years after my second divorce. So, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I thought, I thought, and I have no go of ever getting married again anyway, so it's just going to be me and my cat for the rest of my life. And one night after the orientation cl class, Heather, who was married at the time, um, but she told me that she just filed her divorce papers that day. And Heather told me much later that she thought at the time, he's been divorced twice. Well, there's no ex expectation of ever getting involved with this guy. <laughs> and then <laughs> we went for a walk on a nature trail. Heather took me to the Heckrat Wetland Reserve in Menasha, beautiful place. Uh, she confessed years later that she slightly wanted to see how I would react to being, you know, out, it was her favorite place at the time, and just wanted to see how I would view the place, and am I the kind of man who would think, this is dumb, I'm bored, isn't there a TV or show or something we could watch, let's go home, or could I just walk around in nature and just enjoy walking around in nature, I enjoyed that moment, because I was, I was being here right now, Yes, that was one nice day. And then we got married. <laughs> no. Oh, no, it wasn't that fast. It was a couple years. Um, but before we met, Heather's spiritual path well, was pagan and still is. And throughout, through, through our time together, days, months, gradually we discovered that our paths were very compatible. There are many times when I'm reading about an earth-based spiritual perspective and that viewpoint could easily be found in a book about Zen. Those on either path of the goddess or the path of the Buddha could easily vow to extend tender care with a worshiping heart to all beings, trees and flowers, even rocks and waters. 
The Buddha, as Siddhartha Gautama, found enlightenment under a tree, so it's not difficult to see him as a tree hugger. Heather and I were in introduced to the poem, The Very Short Sutra on the Meeting of the Buddha and the Goddess by our friend Jane Kegi. It was a poem Ali and I read earlier. Jane knew us well enough to know that this beautiful and humorous poem sums up the two of us. So at both our hand fasting and a year and a day later at our wedding here in the fellowship, we had our little statues of the Buddha and the goddess on our altar. Through the years, we've just celebrated our 14th anniversary in July. We cultivated our relationship by doing our best to listen to each other the same respectful way we give to nature, whether in a forest or our, or our front yard. We often stop to admire not only the majestic pines and the aspens and maples or the plants that are known for their beauty or flavor, but also the amazing way nature can find its way out of a, a crack in the sidewalk or in the gravel of a country road. When I'm walking, I often stop to admire something natural growing out of something unnatural. For example, when I'm on the Trestle Trail Bridge in Manasha, I'll stop to admire the thin trees growing out of the concrete blocks. The cracks in the unnatural st structure create emptiness, then beauty slowly appears. When one sits, just sits, in silence with no expectation, the goddess might suddenly appear out of the turquoise sky, and there you find bliss, complete happiness. Thank you so much, Todd. What a joy it is to have Todd as our worship leader this morning. Todd was one of the winners of our 2020 online service auction, where he won the chance to choose a sermon topic for one of our worship services. It was so much fun to meet with Todd and Heather to brainstorm ideas for this service together. And I'll admit, when Todd told me that he wanted our service today to be one that specifically honored both Buddhism and paganism, I felt intimidated. Now, as a minister, I feel very comfortable in a pulpit talking about Unitarian Universalism or Christianity or shared human experiences, but I have no claim to either of these traditions. And so, I'll just share right now that I feel hyper aware of my limitations here. And yet one of the magnificent parts of being a Unitarian Universalist is the deeply held conviction that we can learn so much from each other and each other's spiritual paths. And so I'd like to offer a great deal of gratitude to Todd for our service today. Like the Buddha in our reading this morning, I love to go for walks, especially since moving to Appleton with the beautiful walking paths along the Fox River. Some of you have even come up to let me know that you've seen me along the Newberry Trail with my dog. My dog and I try to take a substantial walk every morning. It's getting a little harder, though, now with it getting colder. But it's one of my favorite parts of the day. I usually have my headphones on because I'm talking to my mom on the phone or I'm listening to music or enjoying a podcast. With such beautiful surroundings, I also often will take pictures of the river during the walk and I'll text these pictures to my family 
usually with a caption like, the river says good morning. Sometimes I'll spend the walk with my mind dwelling on a specific concern or mulling over a decision I have to make. And more often than not, I'm forced by my dog to stop so that she can explore a smell or so that she can mark almost every bush along the trail. <laughs> but our morning walks are a cherished time for me. When I read about the Buddha's walk, however, in the fictional poem that we read earlier, a poem written by Rick Fields, who was a practicing Buddhist and a leading expert on the history of how Buddhism grew in America, when I read about the Buddha's walk in that poem, I have to admit, I couldn't relate. <laughs> Once the Buddha was walking along the forest path, it said, walking without arriving anywhere, or having any thought of arriving or not arriving. What? <laughs> Just walking? No destination? No plan? Nothing on his mind? Just, Just walking? I mean, I get it in theory, right? But would, I would personally find that hard. I would miss my headphones. I would miss taking pictures, texting my family. I would miss that time with my thoughts, with my wonderings, with my decisions. But it's just like what Todd was talking about when he described the practice of zazen meditation, when he is sitting, just sitting, no goal, nothing to achieve, just emptiness. That is the practice. You know, when I first learned about emptiness as a central concept in Buddhist thought and practice, I have to admit, I got it all wrong. I confused emptiness with some nihilistic view, like the idea that nothing matters or life is empty of meaning. And so I'll just share here that I was totally off base. And one writer who helped to correct my understanding was this guy named Paul Knitter. Paul Knitter was an American theologian who was also both a practicing Buddhist and a practicing Christian, a combination which is actually not as weird as it might sound to us. And he was able to explain it in terms that I understood. Knitter said that when we're talking about emptiness in this way, we're not talking about purely negative sense of nothingness, like a room that is empty. But emptiness in the way of being able to receive anything, like, like a room that can be filled. Emptiness is openness, it's potential. It's expansiveness. It's so easy for us to have fixed ideas about who we are, about what it means to exist in this world. I might assert that I know my personality, I know my temperament, I know my thoughts, I know my feelings, I know my political views, I know my religious affiliation, my beliefs, my disbeliefs, my relationships to others. I know all that, and therefore, I know myself, right? But many Buddhist teachers would offer that these ideas we have about our identity come from an illusion that we are each individual beings separate from everything else in the world. 
I feel like I know who I am. I think I'm a pretty kind person. I, I'm someone who is made up of this specific body of flesh and bones. I'm someone who struggles a bit with anxiety. I'm a Unitarian Universalist. That's all me, right? But there are people who taught me to be kind. There is DNA from my parents that created this flesh and bones. There are life experiences and traumas and genetic predispositions that planted that anxiety. There are religious ancestors who made Unitarian Universalism into a religion that I love. And there are circumstances in the world around me that made me develop the values that brought me to this faith. If I strip away all of that stuff, these other influences, there's nothing left that is distinctly me. When we look at this table, we see a table, right? It's just a lovely table. But Thich Nhat Hanh and other Buddhist teachers have pointed out that what we don't see are the trees that created the wood in this table. The sunshine and rain that grew those trees. We don't see the carpenter who built this table, Tom Pinenberg. We don't see the family of that carpenter that brought him into this world. We don't see the ancestors who decided that it was, a good it was good to design a table with four legs. There's nothing about this table that is just simply table. Everything that we perceive about ourselves and about the world comes from the stories that we have been taught to tell about ourselves and about the world. When in reality, we are so deeply interconnected with the rest of existence that we're not separate entities. Nothing is separate. And these stories about ourselves, these stories about existence that we cling to actually get in the way of understanding the true nature of that reality. The ideas that we have about ourselves and about the world, those ideas are too small. Reality is much bigger, much more expansive and fluid. It all sounds kind of confusing, right? Hard to grasp. Or perhaps you hear it and you're like, oh, wow, I get it. Well, the truth is that we can't really get it by thinking about it on an intellectual level. We have to experience it in our bodies through practice and training. And that's why embodied meditation and mindfulness practices are so central to the Buddhist tradition. So that's where we find the Buddha at the beginning of our poem this morning. He's walking around, practicing, tapping into that emptiness. No goal, not striving for anything, no destination, just emptiness. But then what happens in the poem? The magnificent goddess appears in front of him, right? And how does he react? Well, the Buddha folds his hands together and greets the goddess. Oh, goddess, why are you blocking my path? 
Before I saw you, I was happily going nowhere. Now I'm not sure where to go. I love that part of the poem so much. I think it's my favorite part because it, it's kind of this paradox, right? Now that the Buddha's walking has been interrupted, he is striving to get back to that place where he's not striving for anything, right? He wants to return to his state of having no desires. His goal is to have no goal. His own wish to return to his spiritual practice is actually getting in the way of his spiritual practice. If only the goddess hadn't interrupted him, right? He could be back on his way to nowhere. It's clear, though, that the goddess has a few things to teach the Buddha here. The Buddha says, I have penetrated reality. The goddess says, uh-uh-uh, not so fast, Buddha. I am reality. So let's talk about the goddess. Now, pagan traditions are vast and, different tra and diverse traditions that can look very different from each other. In a lot of pagan thought and practice, the goddess or a specific goddess directly refer references the divinity and life-giving power of creation, the divinity and sacredness that's right there within nature, within our planet, all around us, Mother Earth. Not so fast, Buddha, she says, I am reality. Emptiness may be a truth in everything, and yet, and yet, the magnificence of the natural world is in itself an undeniable truth, too. Think about those moments when you have felt connected to nature. The wonder, the beauty, the bigness of it all. Pretty great, right? Now take those moments and imagine that you are the Buddha. You are someone who has a deep embodied understanding of emptiness and the underlying truth of interconnectedness. You have a deep embodied understanding of how there is no part of you that is separate from that wonder, that beauty, that connection. I'll say that again. There is no part of you that is separate from that wonder, that beauty, that connection. You are one with the divine miracle that is creation. It all reminds me of the quote from the Indian guru Sri Nisargata. Sri Nisargata Maharaj, I apologize for my pronunciation. This guru says, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. And between the two, my life flows. I have a hunch that he would be cool with replacing that word love with bliss also. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Bliss tells me I am everything. And between the two, my life flows. Emptiness is bliss. Bliss is emptiness. 
Perhaps we need the openness and spaciousness of emptiness to truly make room for that monumental bliss that can be experienced in our connection to creation. A kind of capital B bliss, to borrow words from a conversation I had with Marie Luna the other day, capital B bliss. Perhaps letting go of our fixed notions of who we are, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and about the world, letting go of these things makes room for beauty and joy and connection. That kind of beauty that comes with existing in this natural world, just the fact that we exist here. Like Todd mentioned, the crack in the sidewalk that makes room for the flower to grow. You may have heard the story of Jarvis Masters. He's an incarcerated man, an author, a practicing Buddhist, currently on death row at San Quentin Prison for what many identify as a wrongful conviction. And in his memoir, he tells the story of being in the prison yard one day when one of the other incarcerated men was about to throw a rock at a seagull. Jarvis immediately sticks out his arm and stops him. People around were surprised to see this. They were worried that a fight was going to break out between these two. They were preparing themselves for something about to go down. And the guy with the rock turns to Jarvis and angrily asks, what are you doing, man? And Jarvis just responds, that bird has my wings. That bird has my wings. Jarvis's practice of emptiness from his own Buddhist tradition allowed him to connect so deeply with the bliss of creation. In this case, specifically the flight of the seagull, a meaningful connection with a freedom that transcended the bleak prison bars at San Quentin. Emptiness is bliss. Bliss is emptiness. This is my forest too, the goddess says. You can't pretend I'm not here. In Unitarian Universalism, we often pride ourselves on how we make room for each other's spiritual paths, right? But the meeting of the goddess and the Buddha in this fictional poem reveals how our own spiritual paths don't do us much good alone. And our own personal spiritual paths are actually not separate from each other's. The Buddha in today's story needed to be interrupted by the goddess. For this was her forest too, and he had something to learn from her. The ways that we live out our spiritual lives in community together, that is transformative. May we each be open to receive what the other has to offer. The truths that all of us hold about what is sacred and what is real. May we live into our spaciousness to feel how we are all truly a part of one another and one with creation. Emptiness is bliss. Bliss is emptiness. What a wonderful world. May it be so, and amen.